All right, if you've got a Bible, let's get to work. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Now, we've been in this little mini-series called Fidelity, and that continues today, although we're not talking about marriage fidelity or singleness or any of those things. We're actually going to be talking about, well, let me just read the first line. It says, now about food sacrifice to idols. So uh, for those of you who woke up this morning with a burning question about idol food, like you were just thinking to yourself, it's Memorial Day weekend, we got to get, we got to get that idol food rolling. Um, <laughs> if you're <laughs> still trying to navigate that, um, I'm glad you're here because we're going to just totally settle that for you. Um, let me read the rest of this. We know that we all possess knowledge, but knowledge puffs up. While love builds up, those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. But whoever loves God is known by God. So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols. We know that an idol is nothing at all in the world, and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God. The Father, from whom all things came and from whom we live, and there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. So we're actually beginning a a little two-week discussion, actually, uh, on worship. And uh, Paul sets up um, his conversation to them about idols and about food sacrificed to idols um, because they asked him about it. They actually sent a report, and and they asked him a a number of different things specifically. We started touching on those the weeks before here, but this is an issue that they actually personally want clarity on from Paul. They want to know if they're doing it right. Now, you got to understand there's worship all over the place in Corinth, all over the place. There's temples everywhere, and what what is really going on when that happens? What is really going on in the temples when food is being sacrificed to these idols and there's, uh, there's the smells and the, the cadence and the rhythm of all of these sacrifices? What is really happening? Are these sacrifices happening? Um, is nothing happening spiritually? Is something happening spiritually? Is it just in their minds that it's happening? Now, we need to understand that there's a context to this. Because in our culture, we don't have temples on every corner. Or do we? And we'll get to that, right? But in our culture, um, we don't have this just overt uh, worship of, of different gods happening all around us. Um, there's a writer named Larry Hurtado, and he wrote this book called Destroyer of the Gods. And he wrote this. He says, there was a virtual cafeteria of Roman-era deities from the many nations, and in this cafeteria, you did not have to restrict yourself to any one or any number of the gods. Indeed, such exclusivity was deemed utterly bizarre, meaning there were so many different gods, so many different people, uh, places to worship, that it would have been weird to exclude some of those out of your life. And so there was this There was this rich culture of idol worship, and there was just teeming with idols all over Corinth, thousands of gods, and 
Jupiter, Zeus, uh, Poseidon, Aeneas, Epaphrodite, so many different gods. And then there was the mystery gods, which sounds so mysterious, right? Like, who are they? Um, temples everywhere. Now, and they believe that the temples were actually intersection points between earth and the gods. So you can imagine what this society was like. Now, most of the time, in fact, almost all the time, the belief was the gods were malevolent and cruel, meaning you needed to persuade and curry the favor of the gods to help you. So if you wanted good crops, if you wanted to have children, all these things were part of normal operation for you to go to a certain temple and offer a sacrifice. Or for your friends, and they didn't have baby showers, you went to the temple with your friend who wanted to have a child and you sacrificed an idol. I mean, sacrificed an animal to that idol. Now, what would happen is about a third of the animal would go towards the gods, meaning a third of the animal was, was kind of burned up and consumed for the temple. A third of it, you would actually invite your friends and family to participate and have a meal, just saying, hey, we're going on a trip, and I'm f- sacrificing uh, a, a goat for Poseidon, and I'd love you to come. You know, it was like your Evite, right? Come to Poseidon's temple, help me have a great trip on my next business trip, okay? And then the other third of the meat that was used in the sacrifice was put for sale in the market. It was just how the economy worked. See, it was just totally, totally woven into everything in in their culture. And then one day, Paul shows up, this itinerant Jewish rabbi teacher guy, wasn't much to look at, shows up in Corinth, and he begins to preach, he begins to announce that there is a new, there's there's one true God, okay? He begins to announce that this one true God breaks into earth through the incarnation and then the death and resurrection of Jesus, and you can be part of this new reality that that he's ushering in. And and many are saved out of idolatry, okay, into the worship and the following of this one true God, Jesus of Nazareth. And about a year and a half later, Paul moves. He, He moves on to another Uh, uh, he just moves on to one place to the next, and he ends up in Ephesus where he writes this letter from. And the people, remember, there's a few people there that are are Jewish converts to Jesus, but there's also a number of people there who are converts from from idol worship and paganism. And they begin to kind of start to revert back into this lifestyle of going to the temple. And then they begin to have teachers. Remember at the beginning of this whole letter, Paul starts talking about teachers. There were teachers who were communicating one thing, and then some people followed another teacher who communicated another thing. Remember there's division? We talked about this. And some of the people who were communicating, they were saying, listen, the idols aren't real, so just go for it. See, we know the idols aren't real, right? 
So, so it's okay to eat, you know, at Poseidon's temple. It's okay to head over to Jupiter's for a little surf and turf, you know. It's okay because we know that there's nothing in the idol itself. The, the idols aren't real. It's just wood and stone. And Paul starts to talk about this a little bit. He says, uh, we all possess knowledge. And that's actually a quote from them to him. And he's saying, yeah, there's things you don't know. You think you know, but you don't know. And he's like, what you really need to know is you're known by God. And then he kind of, we're going to jump ahead here and then we're going to jump back. So, um, and then he says, and he quotes them again in verse four, an idol is nothing at all in the world. And Paul says, no, you're actually wrong on that one. You're, you're actually really wrong. But he does it in a really kind of loving way. And, and so what we're going to do is we're going to figure out kind of what Paul's context is. And then we're going to jump ahead, okay? So uh, this is really important for us, though. Because a lot of times we read passages of Scripture like this. And we have a tendency to um, read it from our own culture which is really, really dangerous. Um, there's a great book out called Misreading Scripture with Western Eyes. And the guys that wrote this book, there's a little quote here in here. I don't know if we're going to have it on the screen or not. It says, when we project our own cultural mores onto the original audience of the Bible, we may fail to apply the Bible correctly in our own lives. So when we read this passage, this is one of those passages that has a whole lot of opportunity for us to, to miss the point, okay, today and next week. So who's, who's writing this? Just a little quick recap. Who's writing this? Paul, and he is Jewish, okay? Really, really important for us to know. Who's he writing to? Corinthians, yeah, and who are mostly what? Yeah, they're not Jewish, they don't, most of them don't have Paul's understanding. Now, one of the things you need to know is that these followers of Jesus that come to, they come to follow Jesus out of this rich culture of paganism, they spent their time in temples, they sacrificed for everything, there was, they experienced spiritual connection with the gods, real, real spiritual connection with the gods. And then they start to follow Jesus. Now, in the church in this time, there were no religious symbols, okay? There were no priests. That came way later. There was no um, altar for sacrifice at all. They met in homes. They didn't meet in temples. Um, it was a very odd religious movement for the people. And so if you're in this movement, you're in this, this new thing where you're following this Jesus of Nazareth, there's no symbols, there's no priests, there's no sacrifices, there's no any of those things, you could probably see where they kind of go, well, what, is, what do we do? <laughs> like, like, what is this about? Like, how do I do, how do I, how do I get things? How do I, how do I make God happy with me? How do, I, how do I change my situation? And so the pull back to paganism, to idol worship was so huge. In fact, the people who were involved in all this idol worship, I mean, it, it, you, you worshiped every god. You didn't exclude yourself. 
they would actually look at these Christians, these followers of Jesus, and you know what they called them? Atheists. They called them atheists because they weren't participating in the worship of idols. Now, here's the thing. Paul's background, and we talked about this about a year ago. In fact, I shared a message with you guys about a year ago that I've gotten so many emails and conversations on, um, and you can go back and look at it, it's, or look at it, <laughs> read it. Oh, you'd have to listen to it. Um, it's the second week of the series we did called Reveal, and it's this Exodus 34 when God reveals who he is to Moses. This really powerful passage of scripture, and we talked about the gods. Now, in scripture... Contrary to how we look at things from a Western perspective, Scripture is rich with this idea that there are many spiritual beings that are in direct war against Yahweh. And it's all through Scripture. And we try to write those off and we try to uh, make conversation about them and maybe just kind of dumb those down a little bit. But it starts in Genesis and it goes all the way through Scripture. In fact, in Genesis, Genesis 1.1 says, in the beginning, God, Elohim, is the word for God in, in Hebrew, created the heavens and the earth. Now that word Elohim is actually a, a word in Hebrew that can be both singular and plural. And so when we read further on in Scripture, we see that word come up times. Uh, we see it in the Exodus story. We see it in, um, in just really all through the Old Testament. Uh, for instance, in Exodus, when uh, Moses is actually in a conversation with uh, Pharaoh about, uh, about letting all the people of Israel out of slavery, there's one plague after another that happens that, that God sends towards the people of Egypt. And then the final plague is not against just Egypt, but it's also for the people of Israel. And, and what is happening here in the first nine plagues is God is systematically blowing up the God for which these people worshiped with that specific thing. So whether it's the frogs or the, or the, or the locusts or all those different things. So systematically all throughout those plagues, God is actually showing his power over that God and the final, the final plague, the, the, the ninth plague is actually against Amun-Ra, who is the sun god. And this is the time when God blots out the sun. And it's a story that is, and he talks over and over again, I will bring judgment on the gods. I will bring judgment on the Elohim. In Exodus 20, the people are out of Egypt um, and, and there's this audible voice of God who's speaking to Moses. He's speaking to Mo Israel through Moses, and, and he begins to lay out what we know as the Ten Commandments. And it goes like this, Exodus chapter 1, verse, uh, sorry, 20, verse 1. It says, and God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God. I am Yahweh Elohim, who brought, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, you shall have no other Elohim before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them for I, the Lord, your Elohim, am a jealous God. Two commands there, not one, 
There's two commands. The first one is, have no other Elohim before me and make no image. Okay? Two different commands. Now, the interesting thing is, in our culture, we tend to collapse those into one command. We tend to collapse those into one thing, and we think that false gods are idols. And, and idols and gods are very different. It lays out here. They're very different. Gods are real. Idols, idols are a shadow of the real thing, meaning there are spiritual beings at war with the creator God, and behind the idols, behind these inanimate, powerless objects are something more spiritual and sinister. In fact, we can see this all over. I mean, uh, there's this courtroom of the magicians that Moses is in, in um, when, he's, when he's dealing with uh, Pharaoh, and there's this instance where he, th- he throws his staff down and it, and it becomes a snake, and then the, the spiritual crew of Pharaoh do the same thing. And then the, uh, the river to blood, they do the same thing. Frogs, they do the same thing. Um, they have a couple hang-ups with other things as well, but, but it's like there's real power there. There's real things happening outside of just who God is and all these other gods at worship. And so, so the people know, in the Old Testament, know that there's like power behind their God, that there's actually something there. It's not just an empty deal. There's actually something going on. Now, almost all the time in Scripture, God is not known as God. He's known as Yahweh or the Lord. And I think that's really important because he, he, he references himself that way because there are other gods, there are other Elohim. And I think it's really hard for us because we, we like to twist this to say, in a lot of churches we try to twist this to say, uh, don't have anything that takes the place of God in my heart. You know, that, uh, you know and, and that's, that's true, uh, let's not put money before God, and let's not put career before God. Th- those are, th- we call that idolatry, but that's not idolatry in the biblical sense. The biblical sense is do not worship Ra, do not worship Dagon, do not worship Molech, do not worship Baal. You are to worship Yahweh. Yahweh, your God. Yahweh, your Elohim. And so... Thousands of times in scripture, it says the Lord your God is a jealous God. Thousands of times. It is a theme that runs from the first pages of scripture all the way through. All the way through. Deuteronomy um, chapter 6, there's a prayer that the people of Israel uh, became serious, it, it became seriously the center of their worship. And it's verse 4 of chapter 6. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. It's called the Shema. And it's this idea of listen, listen, Israel. The Lord is one. There's lots of layers to this meaning. Yahweh is the one God, meaning he is over all the other gods. Creator gods versus the created gods. In verse 13, it says, Fear the Lord your God, serve him only, and take your oaths in his name. Do not follow other gods, the gods of the peoples around you. For the Lord your God, who is among you, is a jealous God, and his anger will burn against you. He will destroy you from the face of the land. 
Now it says this, why is, why is God after worship of him alone? Why? Because he knows he's the only creator God. He knows he's the only creator God. And we have this passage in Psalm 82 where the psalmist is talking about um, God presiding over the great assembly. I shared this with you in a, about a year ago. This, this really interesting passage in Psalm 82. And, and what's happened is Solomon, his heart has been turned away from God, from Yahweh. And it doesn't say it doesn't say exactly all we know how it happened, but he's turned, it's turned away, it says, by the gods. That Solomon, Solomon's heart is turned away by the gods. And in this psalm in, 80, in chapter 82, it says, God presides in the great assembly, and some of your Bibles have the divine council. This is just a really interesting, really interesting psalm. He says he renders, he renders judgment among the gods. How long will you defend the unjust and show partiality to the wicked? Defend the weak and the fatherless. Uphold the cause of the poor and the oppressed. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. So what are the gods doing according to verse 2? Anybody? What are the gods doing? They're doing injustice. They're stoking this evil, malevolent injustice in the world. They're doing abuse. They're doing violence. They're doing oppression. Verse 5, it says, The gods know nothing. They understand nothing. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaking. And they're, so they're wreaking havoc on the earth through injustice. And, he's, and then it says, I said, you are gods. You are all sons of the Most High, but you will die like mere mortals. You will fall like every other ruler. And here's the prayer in verse 8. Rise up, O God. Judge the earth, for all the nations are your inheritance. And I shared before, and I'm going to say it again, that Jesus actually comes to earth at war with the gods at war with the spiritual powers and Jesus comes primarily to do war. And a lot of times we've, we've heard in the, the, the conversation in, in a lot of our churches that Jesus came to give me and you a personal ticket to heaven. Which um, is not how I'd phrase it, but Yes, God wants to be with us. Jesus wants to be with us, and he wants to live with us in eternity, and that's true. But Jesus came to do war against the power center of this world, against the gods that are, are at work and the spiritual beings that are at work against God. And, 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 and we see this in Colossians 2. Don't worry, we're getting to the point. We're almost there. <laughs> We see this in Colossians 2. He, uh, Paul says this, When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. Listen to this. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing 
over them by the cross. Now, some people think that that was merely a statement of the religious leaders of the day and the Roman leaders of the day. Sure, but not totally. So turn back to 1 Corinthians 8. Paul says now about food sacrifice to idols. We know that, and then he quotes them, we all possess knowledge. And his response is, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. But whoever loves God is known by God. So he contrasts their knowledge with God's knowledge. Their knowledge is, oh, this is fine. And, and, And they got to a place where they were puffed up. Meaning, have you ever known somebody that think they know everything and they're just annoying and you just don't want to be around them? Like this idea that that they they know what they're talking about. They're like, oh, those aren't real. It's okay. And he's like, actually, what's really important is love. Love builds up. Knowledge just puffs up. But love builds people up. He's like, you are known by the creator God. Can you think of like this church gathering? There's mostly pagan uh, converts and Gentile converts to, to following Jesus. And there's this small pocket of Jewish converts to Jesus, right? And they're just like, tell them, Paul, right? They're just like, because they know where Paul's coming from. They know what Paul's worldview is. And, and, and they know that this idol worship stuff and this food sacrifice to idols, they would never go near that stuff. says you're known by the one creator God in verse 4 it says so then about food about eating food sacrificed to idols we know that and this is quoting them an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there is no God but one and he uses he uses their quotes and then one of his own he reframes the Shema the, the prayer of Israel around the coming of God into the world in the person of Jesus so he he actually recasts this prayer In Deuteronomy 6, he recasts it to them. He's like, for there's one God and one Lord, Jesus Messiah. Like, the origins of life are in God, by God and for God. And and this this prayer gives them, like, this idea of knowing that they have purpose. They have teleology to know the living God. You were made by God and for God. And, And through whom all things came. He's saying that Jesus is the agent of creation. He is God, active at work in the world, and Jesus is also the agent of redemption, bringing us back from death into like this fullness of life that he has for us. So he reshapes the Shema, telling them uh, 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 the story of Jesus, this idea that the people of Israel actually followed this prayer, that they lived this prayer. It was a prayer of allegiance, but it was also a prayer of rejection allegiance towards the one true God and the rejection of all other gods. It was like the, those, those went hand in hand, right? And so if, the, if what Paul is saying, if the Corinthians would rally around their loyalty to God the Father and the Lord Jesus in a way that signaled this radical rejection, a radical rejection of all other claims of deity, he's like, they would promote unity together, They would be united together 
and they would have a distinct identity. So they would, be a, they would be a people together, united, and they would be different, is basically what Paul is saying. And he says this in verse 5, For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, Paul's saying this is true. Um, he's, he's basically saying, like, behind these idols are very spiritual beings drawing us away from the worshiping of the Most High God. And idolatry in Scripture is basically this idea of giving your life away to anything, anything beside Yahweh, anything. And this is where we can start having those conversations about what idolatry looks like for us. Anything that pulls our heart away from worshiping Yahweh. And they can be very religious things. I mean, you could worship your church. You could worship a certain speaker. <laughs> you could worship, um, you know, very, very benign that seem like they're normal, uh, good things to, to be excited about. You could worship money in your career. You could worship your family. We talked about that the last couple of weeks. There's this way that, that we can really get sideways about worshiping our own families. In verse 6, he says, Yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord Jesus Christ through whom all things came and through whom we live. See, he's saying this, followers of Jesus must work out in practice. Okay, there's that word practice again. I think it's really important. We've got to work out in practice, not just in belief, what the ancient Jewish prayer means about loving the one true God with everything we have and everything we are. Like, how do we work that out? Not just in our heads, but in our practice. There's a quote from a guy named Alan Kreider. I've, I've shared it before, but I'm going to say it again. He says, clearly the early Christians thought their way of life was important. For lifestyle is not the only, is not the only product of belief. It is a display of what people truly believe. Christian, the Christian lifestyle embodies their habitus, their reflexes that reveal the inner character that resulted from their conversion, meaning that there was a certain habit to their lives as early Christians. And it wasn't something that just stated what they believed. It set them apart. It, 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 it displayed who they worshipped. So our conversation today, before we get into all the implications in the next few verses, because he starts to walk through these implications, what does this look like? Should you eat the food? Should you not eat the food? When you, should you eat the food? Who's affected when you eat the food? We're going to get into all that next week. But my question for us today is this. You were created to worship. As a human being, you were created to worship. Every human being worships all the time. It's like breathing. You and I worship. What or who do you worship? 
For Paul, this is a huge question. Coming from Paul's context, if the creator God is the one true God, and he reorients that whole shame of prayer around Jesus, who do you worship? We worship God and Jesus. We worship the gods. Worship success and the money and the fame and the and how your house price is going up. Maybe you're maybe you're psyched. maybe that you're just fired up about that. For all those people who are not in the housing market, you're like, dang it, this is lame. For all of you who who have great careers, maybe you worship the fact that you got your great education and. It may you're just so, man, you know, like you, it sets you apart from other people. Here's how you tell what you worship. What do you make actual sacrifice for? Like an actual sacrifice for. I'm not talking about an animal on your altar in the backyard, <laughs> although I do love barbecue. <laughs> Maybe that's mine, right? <laughs> what do you actually make sacrifices for? Like when we look at the Old Testament, when we look at animal sacrifice, what is animal sacrifice? It is, it is currency over time. You nurture and grow and feed this animal for a number of years. You keep it separate. You keep it safe. You keep it uh, away from other animal animals because it doesn't have blemish, right? And then you sacrifice it. It is currency over time. An $80,000 car is currency over time, right? There are a lot of things in our lives that are currency over time. Our time is currency. What do you give your time? What do you give your money to? What is super important to you? Um, how do we spend our time? How do we spend our money? How do we, how do we escape, right? How do you escape? What are you scared of? What, if, what are you scared of that if you were lost it, it would be the end? What Paul is saying is love Yahweh, your Elohim, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with every scrap of who you are, with every fiber of your being. Because we really believe that it's impossible to believe in Jesus and not follow Jesus. We actually believe this, that following Jesus means that we're going somewhere that your life is moving somewhere that as a community as we follow jesus that this community is moving somewhere that we're becoming something more that our identity is rooted in the kingdom of god regardless of our circumstances regardless of the the tragedies that we've faced and and the pain in our lives that that, that we are moving towards, uh, our identity is moving towards and rooted in the kingdom of God. You are known by God. And that's what Paul's saying. You, before we get into implications of all this idol eating food stuff, you are known by God. The one creator God. The God who sits in judgment on all the other gods. So let's start there. That's what Paul says. Let's start there. Let me pray.